Greetings from Latter-day Media, presenting our dear friend and epic historian on Joseph Smith and Church History, Brother K. Godfrey. Doctrine and Covenants 12 and 13, Joseph Smith History 1, 66-75. Upon you, my fellow servants, part 2. Welcome back. Before we begin our podcast today, I'd like to point out a couple of things that I've brought. I always like to bring artifacts and uh, interesting things that might be uh, new and perhaps different. The uh, the olive wood statue I have in front of me is of Joseph uh, with the axe in his hand. The original bronze of this is actually in front of Josiah Stowell's home in, uh, well, back then it was South Bainbridge, today it's Afton, New York. And then behind me on the wall is uh, a picture entitled Yesterday, Today, and Forever by David Haben. And Mr. Haben depicts uh, Joseph Smith, Moroni, Mormon, and Nephi. Quite an interesting, uh, an interesting picture. But as promised today, we're doing part two of our three-part podcast dealing with five years of Joseph's life, 1825 to 1830. And again, we'll emphasize today the events that took place between 1828 and 1829. Well, during the fall of 1828, hostilities surrounding the prophet Joseph Smith became so severe that he decided that it was time to move. And they're going to move south. They're going to go back down to Colesville back down near Emma's parents uh, in Harmony, Pennsylvania. Martin Harris, who had been investigating all of this at this particular time, decided he needed to help Joseph with his move to Harmony, and so he met him in a tavern in Palmyra and gave to him a $50 silver piece. And he said, and I quote, I give this to you to do the Lord's work. Joseph insisted that Martin considered this just a loan, but Martin reaffirmed Joseph that he had a, a true desire to contribute freely to the cause. Meanwhile, Lucy Harris had begun to doubt Joseph's story, possibly due to his insistence on keeping the plates hidden from her. Um, this suspicion led to a resentment of her husband becoming interested and involved with Joseph. Martin's relationship with his wife at this particular time was strained anyway, and uh, Joseph's continued involvement with Martin would cause a major rift to take place between the two. A short time after the Smiths arrived in Harmony, Martin paid them a visit and expressed a desire to assist Joseph. He proposed to journey east to New York City with the transcription of some of the characters of the plates to show them to scholars in, in the New York area. Perhaps uh, Martin wanted additional reassurance that the plates were authentic, or maybe he was looking for maybe a testimonial that might help when they needed to borrow money for the publication of the translation of the book. In any event, he insisted to Joseph that the Lord had prompted him to make this trip. At the time, neither Joseph nor Martin knew much about the language of the Book of Mormon. Uh, they knew only as much as the angel had, had told Joseph, that the book was a book of ancient American records. 
And so not knowing exactly what kind of uh, language the Book of Mormon was written in, they decided they were going to seek scholars uh, that had some knowledge of American antiquity. So instead of going after Egyptian-type scholars, uh, they went after the American antiquity. Later, of course, Joseph is going to learn that the language of the plates was, was Reformed Egyptian. So Martin departed in February of 1828 en route to New York City. He stopped in Albany, New York, to visit Luther Bradish. Now, Luther Bradish was a former resident of uh, Palmyra and a friend of the Harris's. And Luther Bradish had traveled extensively through the, through the Near East and Egypt. Martin uh, sought his opinion uh, as to whom to visit regarding the translation. Um, Luther Bradish suggested perhaps he visit Samuel Mitchell. And he was a linguist and one of the leading scholars on ancient American culture. So they visited Samuel Mitchell, and after examining the characters, Mitchell evidently sent Martin to one by the name of Charles Anthon. Charles Anthon was a young professor of grammar and linguistics at Columbia College. Anthon had been collecting American Indian stories and speeches for publication, and he was eager to inspect the document that Martin would bring and show to him. Martin claimed that Anthon declared that the characters were authentic until he learned how Joseph Smith had acquired them. He suggested that Martin bring him the plates. Martin refused, and Anthon replied, and paraphrasing a verse from, from Isaiah, quote, I cannot read a sealed book. Though Anthon later denied the details of Martin's account of their meeting, we do know this, that Martin came away from his visits to the Eastern scholars more convinced than ever that Joseph Smith was called of God and the plates and characters um, were, were, were true. He and Joseph viewed the visit to Anthony as literally a fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy, which is also in the Book of Mormon, of, quote, a book that is sealed, which men deliver to one that is learned, saying, Read this, I pray thee. And he saith, I cannot, for it is sealed. It is estimated that Martin traveled probably 1,250 miles over a 74-day period of time just to finally convince himself that the work Joseph was doing was true. When Martin arrived home from having been gone for two months, he found his wife extremely angry with him. She had planned to go with him to New York, but he had slipped out, went out the back door, and left her behind. <laughs> He found that Lucy was now preparing a separate bedroom for him, and she refused to enter it. So we got uh, trouble brewing with the Harris family. And though Martin came to believe quite sincerely in Joseph's prophetic call, his wife had turned bitterly hostile. Lucy Harris was concerned, quite understandably, that Martin might take a large financial risk in helping to publish the book, and that her peers would mock her husband's participation in what they viewed as you know, a fraudulent scheme of some sort. Well, she was also stung by the way Joseph rebuffed her every attempt to see the plates, and she beleaguered Martin insistently to show her some evidence of Joseph's ability to translate. In March of 1828, Martin left for Harmony with Lucy by his side. Lucy had decreed that she was going with him. Well, Martin agreed that she could go for a couple of weeks, 
But then he would be taking her home and he would return and scribe for Joseph. The mother Smith, Lucy Mack Smith, relates, and I quote, As soon as she arrived there, she said she had to see the plates and would never leave until she had accomplished it. Without delay, she began ransacking every nook and corner of the house, chest, cupboards, trunks, and etc. Consequently, Joseph was compelled to take them out of the house and secret them elsewhere. Not finding them in the house, she concluded that Joseph had buried them. And so the next day she went out and hunted the grounds adjacent to the house. She kept up such a search until 2 p.m. in the afternoon. When she returned home after two weeks in Harmony, she endeavored to dissuade Martin from having anything to do with translating the record. On April 12, 1828, Martin returned to Harmony and began to write for Joseph. The process of translation during the Martin-Harris time period was done with the use of the Yerman Thummim. As they progressed, Martin asked Joseph to, quote, inquire of the Lord through the, through the Yerman Thummim if he might carry the writings home and exhibit them to his wife and others. Well, Joseph wanted to please Martin because he had shown him friendship, quote, when there was no other earthly friend to succor or to sympathize. So Joseph did inquire of the Lord. The answer, Joseph said, was that he must not. Martin was not satisfied with this answer and desired that I would inquire again. I did so, and the answer was the same as before. Still, he could not be contented and insisted that I should inquire once more. After much solicitation, I again inquired of the Lord and permission was granted on certain conditions. Martin was to show the plates Martin was to show the translated pages only to his wife, parents, brother, and sister-in-law. Those are the only people given permission. We learn now that at this point, Joseph gave up the Urim and Thummim to the angel. For the Urim and Thummim was taken from me in consequence of my having wearied the Lord in asking for the privilege of letting Martin Harris take the writings which he lost by transgression. Martin left on June the 14th, 1828. Well, the next day, June 15th, Emma gave birth to Joseph's first son. He lived about one hour. Lucy Smith said, quote, Immediately after Mr. Harris's departure, Emma became a mother of a son, but she had small comfort from the society of the dear little stranger, for he was very soon snatched from her arms and borne aloft to the world of spirits before he had time to learn good or evil. His name would have been Alvin, and he's buried in the Smith Cemetery on that very day. Today, the Smith Cemetery is known as the McCune Cemetery. Records indicate that Emma was on the verge of death for two weeks. After she was so ill, she started to recover and urged Joseph to go find Martin. It had been nearly three weeks since they had heard from him last. Quote, After much persuasion, he concluded to leave his wife in the care of her mother for a few days and set out to find Martin. In the meantime, an elated Martin Harris, as you can imagine, returned home with the manuscript pages and showed them to his wife. He did not, however, handle the precious manuscript with the prescribed care, and it was soon lost. 
precisely how this happened is somewhat of a matter of speculation. One commonly repeated rumor was that Lucy removed the pages from Martin's bureau and burned them, though she denied any responsibility for their loss. Some, including Joseph Smith, suspected a conspiracy on the part of Lucy Harris and perhaps others. Martin made every effort to try and find the manuscript. The thought of confessing to Joseph what had happened just raked on him. He even, quote, ripped open the beds and the pillows. But to no avail, the manuscript was not to be found. When Joseph finally came to his parents' home after several weeks, eager for news, Martin trudged reluctantly the three miles to the Smith's Manchester home. As he approached, he walked, quote, with a slow and measured tread towards the house, his eyes fixed thoughtfully upon the ground. When he came to the gate, he did not open it, but he got up on the fence, and he sat for some time there with his hat drawn over his eyes. He at last entered, and having little appetite for the dinner they had prepared for him, he soon said, pressing his hands upon his temples and crying out with a tone of deep anguish, Oh, I have lost my soul. Joseph understood immediately what had happened. He demanded that Martin return and look again for the manuscript, but Martin insisted that further searching would be in vain. Exhausted and discouraged, Joseph returned to Harmony and walked a short distance from his home, praying for mercy. The angel appeared and gave again to Joseph the Urim and Thummim, or interpreters that Joseph had originally received with the plates, but had lost them for having wearied the Lord in asking that Martin Harris might take the writings. So using the Urim and Thummim, Joseph received the earliest of his revelations for which a text survives. It's now known as Doctrine and Covenants, Section 3. The Revelation rebuked Joseph, quote, How oft you have transgressed the commandments and laws of God, and have gone on in the persuasions of men, for behold, you should not have feared men more than God. However, it held out hope. Remember, God is merciful. Therefore repent of that which thou hast done, which is contrary to the commandment which I gave, and thou art still chosen, and art again called to do the work. Well, Joseph now gave back the Urim and Thummim for the second time, and also returned the gold plates. It would be nearly three months before Joseph would again be permitted to translate the Book of Mormon, not until September 22, 1828. By October of 1828, Joseph was again translating. However, the process was very slow, and Joseph was commanded to go no faster than means were provided to enable him to translate. And so he said, and I quote, I did not go immediately to translating, but went to laboring with my hands upon the small farm which I had purchased from my wife's father in order to provide for my family. During this time, when possible, Emma was his scribe. At this point in translation, Joseph was now using the seer stone. Emma said, and I quote, I frequently wrote day after day, often sitting at the table close by him, he sitting with his face buried in his hat with the stone in it and dictating hour after hour with nothing between us. In November of that year, 
Joseph and Emma had visitors there in Harmony. Joseph's father and mother came down to see how their son was doing. The last time they saw him, he was in despair, with Martin having lost the 116 pages. Lucy said, and I quote, We spent our time very agreeably and returned home relieved of a burden which had seemed too heavy to be borne. The joy we had over the present prosperity of our son with regards to his spiritual concerns far outweighed anything of the kind which we had before experienced. We now had learned to appreciate the sweet having drunk deeply of the bitter for a season. The translation process continued, however, it only averaged about three pages a week. For months, Martin Harris remained at the Palmyra home, haunted by the loss of the manuscripts. He was also distressed to discover that his wife and others sought to discredit Joseph and make him out to be a fraud who was simply after Martin's money. While longing for reconciliation and bearing news of these disturbing efforts, he visited Joseph in Harmony in March of 1829. And to Martin's relief, Joseph had obtained forgiveness and was preparing to resume the translation. Martin asked Joseph once again for the privilege of seeing the plates. He desired a firm witness that, quote, Joseph hath got the things which he hath testified that he hath got. Joseph received a revelation from Martin found today in Doctrine and Covenants section 5. He received this in March of 1829. In it, the Lord revealed that three witnesses would be called to see and give testimony of the plates. Then, to Martin Harris's delight, the Lord promised him that, quote, If he will go out and bow down before me and humble himself in mighty prayer and faith in the sincerity of his heart, then I will grant unto him a view of the things which he desireth to view. The revelation also indicated that the book's authenticity would be affirmed by its message rather than by the plates, and that many would not believe even if Joseph Smith were to show them all things. Well, in April of 1829, in answer to prayer, we introduce to you now a new character in our story. His name is Oliver Cowdery. Oliver Cowdery was a friend of Joseph Smith Sr. and a teacher in the Palmyra School District. He boarded at the Smith home in Palmyra where he had heard of the events surrounding Joseph Smith and later received a testimony of their truthfulness. He came to Joseph to render assistance and from his hand nearly all of the translation of the Book of Mormon was penned. Work on the translation recommenced in earnest on April the 5th, 1829, when Oliver Cowdery assumed his new role as scribe. Joseph and Oliver picked up where Joseph and Martin had previously left off, near the beginning of the book of Mosiah. Just a, a little side note here, uh, more than 22% of the revelations found in the Doctrine and Covenants are linked in one way or another to Oliver Cowdery. There's no other person mentioned in the Doctrine and Covenants more often than Oliver. He's found in 36 sections of the Doctrine and Covenants. Well, as Oliver and Joseph continued the translation, they became concerned about the subject of baptism. I want to devote some time here to the restoration of both the Aaronic and the Melchizedek priesthood. 
On May 15, 1829, they retired to the woods and knelt in prayer. Quote, While we thus employed praying and calling on the Lord, a messenger from heaven descended in a cloud of light. John the Baptist laid his hands on the head of Oliver and Joseph and conferred upon them the Aaronic priesthood. Joseph then baptized Oliver, after which Oliver baptized Joseph. After the baptism, Joseph laid his hands on Oliver and ordained him to the Aaronic priesthood. Oliver then followed, doing likewise to Joseph. And so thus we have the power of baptism restored to the earth. Ten days later, the first convert baptism would take place. It was none other than Joseph's younger brother, Samuel Smith. Samuel was in harmony, having escorted Oliver Cowdery down to Joseph's home. John the Baptist told Joseph that in the near future, the power of laying on of hands for the gift of the Holy Ghost would be given them. This event happened later that month as Joseph and Oliver were fleeing from their enemies in Colesville en route home to Harmony. They were ordained to the apostleship by Peter, James, and John. So now the question I would ask is, where were these two priesthoods actually restored? For almost six years, Joseph had anticipated the restoration of the priesthood of God. On September the 22nd, 1823, Moroni had educated Joseph on this subject. He stated, and I quote, When the golden plates are interpreted, the Lord will give the holy priesthood to some, and they shall begin to proclaim this gospel and baptize by water, and after they have baptized, to give the Holy Ghost by the laying on of hands. On May the 15th, 1829, the Aaronic priesthood was restored. Historical accounts show that Joseph and Oliver had been praying in the woods, quote, aside from the abodes of men. This is the time when John the Baptist would appear. The most likely wooded area on Joseph's farm was on the north side of the property where the sugar maples grew. Because of boats on the river and the lack of tree cover on the plowed portions of the land, no other part of the property would provide the seclusion that the men needed. Oliver Cowdery describes the answer they received to their prayer, and I quote Oliver, The voice of the Redeemer spake peace to us. The veil was parted, and the angel of God came down clothed with glory and delivered the anxiously looked-for message. The angel introduced himself and conferred the Aaronic priesthood, explaining that it holds, quote, the keys of the ministering of angels and of the gospel of repentance and of baptism by immersion for the remission of sins. He then commanded the two to go be baptized. And so Oliver and Joseph made their way to the Susquehanna River, choosing a moment when the boat traffic would be least disturbing, and then followed the angel's instructions. After baptizing each other, they ordained each other to the Aaronic Priesthood, and these ordinations to the Aaronic Priesthood probably took place either on the banks of the river or perhaps even back in the home, the Harmony home. John the Baptist had explained to Joseph and Oliver that he acted under the direction of Peter, James, and John, who held the keys of the priesthood of Melchizedek, which priesthood, he said, would in due time be conferred on Joseph and Oliver. Now, many people have wondered when and where this event took place. And since the details we have in the scriptures are not as precise as they are for the John the Baptist appearance, accounts are limited 
And so careful consideration of available sources gives some insights, perhaps, into the restoration of the Melchizedek priesthood, and I'd like to review some of those with you. In the case of the Aaronic priesthood, we can kind of divide the restoration of the priesthood into smaller parts occurring at different places. For example, in the woods, Joseph and Oliver heard the Lord's voice and received uh, the authority by the heavenly messenger. In the river, Joseph and Oliver baptized each other. After the baptisms on the river banks or possibly back in the home, they, they were ordained. Now, in the case of the Melchizedek priesthood, the restoration process happened at a more distant place. The date and location of when and where Joseph and Oliver ordained each other as elders is known, meaning they had already received the Melchizedek priesthood. The ordination to elders took place after the sustaining vote by those who participated in the meeting in which the church was organized on April 6, 1830 at the Whitmer home in Fayette, New York. When Joseph and Oliver received the Melchizedek priesthood, they had not been ordained to a specific office within that priesthood. In Doctrine and Covenants section 128, Joseph Smith recalled that the appearance of Peter, James, and John occurred, quote, in the wilderness between Harmony, Susquehanna County, and Colesville, Broome County, on the Susquehanna River. But he did not give a date. So how much can we determine from available sources about when and where this happened? As far as the location, the wilderness mentioned in Doctrine and Covenants section 128 verse 20 refers to a piece of land some 27 miles long, a stretch of country road between Joseph and Emma's home in Harmony and the town of Colesville, New York, where Joseph's early friend and supporter Joseph Knight lived. This road comes in sight of the Susquehanna River in five places, none of which were densely settled during 1829. So if Joseph followed his pattern of seeking a secluded place to pray, he could easily have found one along this wilderness road. Peter, James, and John restored the Melchizedek priesthood then somewhere along this road. Now I have found a journal entry of a friend of Joseph Smith who said, quote, the event took place halfway between Colesville and Harmony. That would put it about the 14-mile mark. And there is one very beautiful bend in the Susquehanna River near the road that could possibly be the location. Now, backdating to the time after the restoration of the Aaronic priesthood and Joseph's subsequent visit to Colesville, it appears the Melchizedek priesthood was restored approximately two weeks after the Aaronic priesthood was restored, or about May 30th, 1829. Now, I want to turn our attention to this translation process that Oliver was so engaged in and see what we can learn about that. The process of translation can be visualized by literally a comparison of what's left of the original Book of Mormon manuscript to the printer's copy, and then subsequent copies perhaps after that. Note that the original manuscript of the Book of Mormon was actually placed by the Prophet Joseph Smith in the cornerstone of the Nauvoo House in 1842. Unfortunately, because of water damage, the original manuscript was nearly destroyed. Uh, we only have approximately 28% of, of the manuscript. So taking a look at this particular slide, the original printer's copy 
which was purchased by the church in 2017, comparing it with what's left of the original manuscript, which most was destroyed, says a photograph of a piece of original manuscript of the Book of Mormon. Evidence from the way the original manuscript was written indicate that it was indeed transcribed by the dictation of a spoken voice. Emma said, quote, I once felt the plates as they lay on the table, tracing their outline and shape. They seemed to be pliable like thick paper and would rustle with metallic sound when the edge was moved by the thumb. Joseph Smith III said, and I quote, As the plates were translated in Emma's home, she saw that Joseph was reading from no other book or manuscript other than the metallic plates. The Book of Mormon was orally dictated. Any errors in the original manuscript are from scribes mishearing the words. When the scribe had written the text, he or she would evidently read it back to Joseph for correction. David Whitmer said, the translation process occurred in full view of Joseph Smith's family and associates. The common image of a curtain, perhaps hanging between the prophet and his scribes, is really based on a misunderstanding. There was indeed a curtain, at least in the latter stages of the translation, at the Whitmer home in Fayette. However, this curtain was used near the front door in order to prevent passerbyers and gawkers from interfering with the work. Martin Harris said, I quote, The prophet used a seer stone for convenience, as well as the Urim and Thummim to translate with. The seer stone was put in a hat to, in order to obscure the surrounding light. The sentence would appear and be written by Martin. He would then repeat the sentence to Joseph, and if correct, the sentence would disappear, and another appear in its place. If the sentence was not correct, the sentence would remain visible until corrected. On one occasion, Martin found a stone almost exactly like Joseph's. He put his stone in place of Joseph's. Joseph remained silent when looking at the stone. Suddenly he said, Martin, what is the matter? All is dark in Egypt. Martin then confessed to what he had done. And when asked by Joseph why he did it, he said, quote, To stop the mouths of fools who told him that Joseph had learned the sentences the night before and was merely repeating them. Well, access was given the church by the Community of Christ Church, or the RLDS faith as it was originally called, to the original printer's copy of the Book of Mormon manuscript, which we now own and have purchased outright. This manuscript was held by the Whitmer family until 1888. It was then sold to the RLDS church. This document was compared and analyzed with the 28% of the original manuscript owned by the church, as well as additional small pieces of original manuscript owned by the Wilford Woodruff Museum. It was then compared to the various early printings of the Book of Mormon, including some 22 copies, original copies of the 1830 Book of Mormon owned by the Community of Christ Church. Just a side note, um, the 1842 printing of the Book of Mormon is the most rare, uh, not necessarily the most valuable, but the most rare. This edition has dropped the junior from Joseph Smith's name because his father had died by this time. There were only 640 copies made of this particular edition, and few have, sur have survived today. 
All right, let me share with you some important findings that have surfaced using this comparative research method that I've alluded to. Scribal corrections in the original manuscript support statements made by eyewitnesses that Joseph sometimes spelled out unfamiliar Book of Mormon names. For instance, when the name Coriantumr first appeared in the Book of Helaman, Oliver Cowdery first spelled it out phonetically as Coriantmir. Then he immediately crossed out the whole name and spelled it correctly. Joseph spelled it out for him letter by letter. In fact, Oliver ended the final R with a huge stroke of his quill, as if he were saying, how on earth would you have expected me to spell that correctly? Another example um, of the spiritual nature of this translation is Hebrastic literism. Hebrastic literism. These are phrases, these are phrases that are completely uncharacteristic to our English today. Another evidence to the spiritual nature of the translation is the example of Hebrastic literism. These are phrases that are completely uncharacteristic to English. An example is the extra and found after the if clause in Moroni 10.4. If ye ask with a sincere heart, with real intent, having faith in Christ, and it will manifest the truth of it unto you. You can see in today's text, we don't have those. Those have been eliminated. But the, in the original uh, text, they were there. And they're very Hebrew in nature. Joseph Smith acted as his own scribe for 28 words of the original manuscript. These 28 words are the earliest known writings in Joseph's own hand. Here Joseph seems to have taken over for a moment for Oliver. Perhaps Oliver um, needed to get a drink. This number of copied words that Joseph has written out, these 28 words, indicate perhaps at any one given time how many words Joseph could actually see. His 28 words found in Alma 45:22 read, Yea, in every city misspelled, throughout all the land which was possessed by the people of Nephi, and it came to pass that they did appoint priests and teachers. My wife and I uh, have a signature document of the Prophet Joseph Smith, and I just wanted to include that here so you could see what Joseph's original signature looked like. Along with the loss of the first 116 pages of the original manuscript, or the Book of Lehi, most of the original first two chapters of the Book of Mosiah were apparently lost too. In the printer's manuscript, the beginning of Mosiah was originally designated as chapter 3. And this would explain why the book begins in the middle of a sentence, Mosiah 101. And now there was no more contentions in all the land of Zarahemla. So we'll start with chapter 3. Chapter headings and book divisions came as a surprise to Joseph. He couldn't see in advance as to where the text was concluding. He would periodically come to a break in the dialogue, and in this case he'd tell a scribe to write, write chapter. Chapter numbering and book divisions would all come later. These are but a few of the findings that point to the reality that the Book of Mormon was literally translated by the gift and power of God. In May, Joseph and Oliver approached the end of the Book of Mormon as we now have it. 
they wondered whether they should translate the lost portion. To address this question, the Lord gave Joseph Smith another revelation, now found as Doctrine and Covenants section 10. And I'm going to emphasize parts of this. There's a comment or two I want to make. Therefore you shall translate the engravings which are on the plates of Nephi, down even until you come to the reign of King Benjamin, or until you come to that which you have translated, which you have retained. And behold, you shall publish it as the record of Nephi, and thus I will confound those who have altered my words. Now this revelation confirmed Joseph's fears of a conspiracy. Quote, Behold, Satan has put into their hearts to alter the words which you have caused to be written. However, the Lord reassured Joseph that he had a long-prepared solution for the problem. Joseph was commanded not to retranslate the lost portion, but to supplement it with the translation of the plates of Nephi, which covers a similar period. Thus the Lord would frustrate the plans of the conspirators. Now the opportunity to translate the small plates of Nephi, which seem to be a second set of plates, would take place in Fayette, New York, at the home of David Whitmer. It was time to leave Harmony forever. Emma would never again see her parents. The persecution was severe. The final translation would be accomplished in Fayette, New York. Now we've talked today about Martin Harris and that God is very merciful. We've introduced to you Oliver Cowdery, a man of great faith and courage. We've discussed the baptism of both water and fire, and we've taken an in-depth look at the translation process. Our next and last podcast covering these five years of Joseph Smith's misunderstood uh, life will... Uh, will be the 1829-1830 podcast that we'll do next. In closing, I want to recommend to you, perhaps view a church video. The video is entitled Days of Harmony. It's an excellent video that covers much of the same time frame that we've covered today. Thank you for joining us, and I look forward to seeing you another time. Thank you for listening today and for sharing this ComeFollowMe2021.com website. This Come Follow Me video series is a bonus resource to enhance your appreciation of the Prophet Joseph Smith with little-known facts and research about American and church history. We sure appreciate those who have been contributing on our Patreon page under Latter-day Media. We'll have a link in the show notes, and we would love to invite to help support this work. To contact Kay, email him at footstepsofjoseph at gmail.com. And coming soon are six hours of DVDs following the footsteps of Joseph.